So the topic for tonight's lecture is four hadiths that are the foundation of Islam. Four hadiths that are the foundation of Islam. And uh, in order to begin the discussion, we have to first remind ourselves of the importance and merit and honor of studying hadith in the first place. And this is something that, as I mentioned before in a lot of khutbahs and different lectures, that the study of hadith was something that was very central to Islamic thought and culture and something that people would take very seriously. And one of the examples that we mentioned before in that regard is the example of Imam Malik, uh, rahimahullah, and how, uh, how Imam Malik would, if, if he was studying, if someone came to him to study hadith, he would act differently than if someone came to him for fatwa. So if someone came to his home and they wanted to ask him a question, they would, they would ask the servant, ask them, is they, are they here for fatwa? Are they, for, are they here for hadith? And if they were here, if they were there for fatwa, then Imam Malik would come out and he would answer their question. And if they were there for hadith, then he would change into very nice clothes and he would put cologne on and he would make sure that he looked beautiful. And then he would come out and he would recite the hadith. So the study of hadith is something that's very, very important. And we start this whole conversation about four hadith that are the foundations of Islam uh, by, by reminding ourselves that the Prophet says about himself that he was given jawami and kenan. That the Prophet had jawami and kenan. Which means that he was given concise, comprehensive speech. So he did not have to say a lot, but in the little bit that he said, he was able to uh, convey amazing, amazing meanings. And one of the, the, the great authors, different authors in Islamic history have done different things with this, but one of the people who really has written a lot on this, or kind of shown this, is Ibn Rajab and Hanbali. Uh, we have literally entire books that are Ibn Rajab's commentary on one hadith. So for example, in, in one of them that's in English is the hadith uh, about the one that I mentioned in the khutbah about the, 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 the scholars being the heirs of the prophets and in the longer version of this hadith it goes for a long time it says you know that everything in creation even the fish in the ocean uh, they, make, they ask forgiveness for the one who's seeking knowledge and it's a very long narration and Ibn Rajab commented on this and Imam Zayd Shakir actually translated it it's, it's been published it's called Heirs of the Prophets it's a small book about 80, 100 pages but it's 80 or 100 pages on that one hadith. So the Prophet ﷺ was able to, in one hadith, in one statement, encompass uh, so much in those statements. And this is something that we see in the work of the Prophet ﷺ, the sayings and actions of the Prophet ﷺ, but also throughout history of mankind in Proverbs. So if you look across all kinds of cultures, you find across all kinds of cultures, everyone has Proverbs. And a lot of times when you really start looking at the Proverbs, you realize that this, this proverb, this method in Arabic or in whatever language also happens to be in a different language. So when we were studying this in, uh, in our Arabic class, when we were first studying Arabic, we had one of our lessons was on Proverbs. And so many of the Proverbs that we covered are actually Proverbs that I knew growing up. Growing up, My mom had told me them or we had read them in fairy tales or you know, fables that you read growing up in America, the same ones. So part of this is to say that there are understandings that human beings have come to throughout history that are shared. 
Like everyone will come and they'll say, you reap what you sow. You'll find that across multiple languages. Some sort of variation of you reap what you sow. There's even sometimes, I, one time I was trying to look into this more, there's some proverbs that are shared literally across tens or dozens of languages. They all have the same, almost same exact proverb. So the Prophet sent them his speech, Yajri Majnul Method, that the speech of the Prophet sent them, it's at the capacity of a proverb. You know, everything that he said, so many things that he said, you can use them like you would use proverbs in daily life. So we, we say this in the beginning of the discussion uh, for two points. The first is to, to say that four hadith that, comprise, comprom- that, that you know, include the entire sunnah, this is a big claim. But considering the comprehensiveness of his speech, them, you can imagine uh, the reason for such a claim. The second thing is that if you're able to use concise speech and have it incur meaning on people, then there's two things related to that. The first is that the speech itself that you've chosen is really well chosen. And this is something that, as in general, if we want to try to follow the sunnah of the Prophet and then this is better than being very verbose. If you can say what you need to say in less words, you say it in less words. Um, now, part of the difficulty with this, especially for young people who go to school here, is they don't teach you that in school. You go to write an essay for class, <laughs> you write an essay for class, they tell you the essay has to be 10 pages. So you usually finish the essay in like four pages, and you're looking at it, like, I don't have anything more to say in this argument, but I have to fill it up with all these big useless words and sentences in order to get to 10 pages, because you just, that's the way that you're taught to write. So you end up writing in a way that is completely excessive. But number one is that we learn to be more concise in our speech. Number two is that part of the reason why the Prophet can say little and have it mean a lot is because his actions speak louder than his words. And this is, this is a proverb, right? Actions speak louder than words is a proverb in and of itself. But he's able to do that because literally his actions speak louder than his words. The Prophet everyone knows who he is and what he's about and what's important to him, so he's not going to waste time on saying more than needs to be said. And these are both part of, part of the sunnah that's very important for us to pay attention to. So where does this discussion begin? This discussion begins in the statement of Abi Dawood, Rahimahullah, uh, who's one of the great compilers of hadith. So the six major hadith collections in the Sunni tradition are Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawood, Tirmidhi, Numajah, and Al-Nasai. These are the six major collections of hadith. One of them, again, is Abu Dawood. Abu Dawood, he says, he says, كتبت عن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ألف hadith. He says, I wrote from the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم 500,000 hadith. Okay, this is the starting point for his statement. Abu Dawood is saying, I wrote 500,000 hadith of the Prophet Sometimes when you hear these numbers, you think to yourself, this is an insane number. Right? Let me help a little bit. If you have one, every hadith has two parts, right? Every hadith has the body of the hadith itself, and it has the chain of narration. If you have five chains of narration that go to the same text, that's five hadith. Because it has a different chain of narration. It's the same text in the end, but all the chains of narrations make it five rather than one. So when he says 500,000, 
it's not necessarily 500,000 independent statements, actions, or descriptions of the Prophet ﷺ, but with the chains of narration and so on. And some of them may be very similar, but but yet different. So he says, I wrote 500,000 hadith. He says, I chose from that that which I put in my collection, this book, his book, the Sunan of Abi Dawood, 4,800 hadith. So this is the first distillation. Out of the 500,000, he distills it to 4,800 hadith. He put it in his collection. The Sunan of Abu Dawood has roughly 4,800 hadith. Then he says after this, Look at this statement. This is an ajib statement. Abu says, the human being, there are four hadith out of this 4,800, they're enough for the human being. <laughs> I mean, subhanAllah. Someone, one of the things that blows my mind about this is one thing that you notice sometimes with people of knowledge, people who spent a long time learning, and this is not to discredit them, uh, is that you, when you've spent a long time learning, you have a lot of appreciation for what you've learned, right? And you're very happy for all the things that you've learned, and you don't want to simplify it too much, <laughs> right? Because you spent all that time doing it. He spent his entire life studying hadith. 500,000 hadith of the Prophet Imagine you studied, you wrote 500,000 hadith of the Prophet, and then you worked so hard to get 4,800 into this collection that you have, and you, with all of your modesty after that, you're going to say, you know what though, people just need four. Like this whole thing that I just spent my entire life on, alhamdulillah, I spent my life on that, but really you need four. This takes a lot of, a lot of humility, number one, from Abu Dawood. Number two, it takes an amazing intellect to be able to, to, to think about even distilling all of that information from 500,000 into 4,800, from 4,800 into four. Uh, and, and the book of 4,800 of Abu Dawood has been... Uh, very highly praised by scholars throughout history. One of them was Imam Ghazali. Imam Ghazali basically said, if you study and understand the Qur'an, and you study and you understand Abu Dawood, you're going to know everything you need to know about fiqh. Like, this is the point of his book in the first place, is to put the hadith that all of the different scholars used in, in deriving their schools of thought and so on. So to take that 4800 and go to 4, is an amazing thing in the first place. So this four is the source of our conversation. He says, "Ahduhum, ahduha, qawluhu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam inna man a'malu bin niyat." Probably would have guessed. "Wathani qawluhu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam min husni islam al-mali tarkum malayani." "Wathalith qawluhu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam la yakun al-mu'minu mu'minan hatta la yardani akhihi illa ma yardani nafsi." "Wal-rabi'u qawluhu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam al-halal bayin wal-haram bayin." So he says, "The first one." is actions or by intentions. The second one is, from the good of the person's Islam is for them to leave that which does not concern them. The third one is, uh, that a person does not truly believe until they love for their brother or sister what they love for themselves. And the fourth one is, that uh, the halal is clear and the haram is clear. And we'll go all of these uh, one by one. So we, these are the four that he's, he's going down to. Number one, actions are by intentions. I put the whole chain of narration here to make a point, but I won't go through the entire point. I'll just say that in between the different people who are in the chain of narration, uh, it's not just 
so and so heard from so and so heard from so and so. There's actually specific terms that get used, uh, and we're not going to go into a whole lot of definite, definite, but suffice it to say that there are different terms like hadathana, sami'na, akhbarana. All these things mean different things. All these statements mean different things in hadith. One of them means that they heard it from the shaykh, the other one means that they read it on the shaykh, the other one, it might be in a gathering, it might be individually, it might... So there's all types of stuff that's inside the chain of narration itself. And then it comes to it and it says, Umar ibn Khattab says that he heard the Prophet say, when he, uh, the, the actions are by intentions and every person will have that which they intended. So whoever made hijrah for Allah and his messenger, uh, then his hijrah is for Allah and his messenger, and whoever made hijrah uh, for this world or for a woman so that they can marry them, then they will have that which they made hijrah for. Um, so this this narration, there's a lot of things to take from this hadith. The first is that uh, actions are by intentions, and every person will have that which they intended. So the first part of it is that everything that we do has a reason behind it. Everything that we do has a reason behind it. Whether or not we recognize, realize, think about, are mindful of that reason is a different issue. We may not be mindful of it at all, but it's still there. There's a reason behind the way that we act. There's a reason that motivates our behavior in the end. That reason could be Allah. That reason could be any number of other things. So this is the first part of it. The second part of it is that that you know intention that we have that motivates the action uh, leads it can lead to the acquisition of that which we intended. And again, this could be a bad thing, this could be a good thing. And uh, we shouldn't automatically assume because we got something that it was good. Uh, if our intention behind it, if you, know, you may, for example, just because someone is famous doesn't mean that they're righteous. It's a very important example. Just because someone is famous doesn't mean that they're righteous. They could have intended to achieve fame. And they took the steps that they needed to in order to achieve fame. They made friends with this person and that person, and they got put in this position, and they spent some money on this. They promoted themselves on Facebook, all these other things that can possibly happen. And they achieved fame. I mean, Facebook tells you it's a fitna. They tell you, if you have a page on Facebook, they'll come to you, they send you a little note. They say, this post of yours is performing 95% better than the other posts. If you want, you can spend, it right now it's reaching X amount of people. If you want, you can spend $15, it's going to reach X amount of people. So you can have what you intended. If that's what you intend, is to be popular or famous or whatever, you can reach as many people as you want, if you're willing to pay for it. But that doesn't necessarily, so we shouldn't automatically assume that someone who has large reach has tawfiq. They might not have tawfiq. They may have spent money on marketing, but they have what they intended. Maybe it was tawfiq, maybe it was marketing. Maybe it was because they were good, maybe it was something else, right? So this is my point is that it's not always a good reason behind stuff, but we can. There are rules still. Every person will have that which they intended. Part of this is that there are rules in life. If you follow the rules of how to achieve something, it's possible that you're going to achieve it. Whether or not uh, there's blessings in it is a second issue. These scholars of Islam have pretty much agreed that this is one of the most important hadith in Islam. So some of them said that it's a third of all knowledge, some of them said it's a fourth of all knowledge. These were things that were said by Shafi'i, Ibn Hanbal, Tirmidhi, Abu Dawood, Darakutni, many others. So these are all massive scholars. They, they all said it's either half of knowledge or a third of knowledge or a fourth of knowledge. Um, and this is because actions are either from the heart, the tongue, or the limbs. And your actions are coming from your heart, from your tongue, or your limbs. The heart is one third. So the action, you know, 
And intention is in the heart. It's one third of everything that we can possibly do. And this statement is mentioned in the commentary, that there's tawatur from the scholars. Like everyone agreed that this is something that's an, ama- it's an amazing hadith. And there's something to be said about that. The passing down and understanding of things that has been sent over, over the centuries uh, is, is something that's very important. You may not find or you may not be aware of a particular text, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Uh, and, and so, for example, the Hanafi and the Maliki schools in particular put a lot of, there's a big discussion in Usul on a riwayah and an amal. What's the difference between riwayah and amal and which one takes priority and which one's stronger than the other? But it's the issue of if you have a narration, that's one thing. But if you have action, it's another thing. So Imam Malik used to give particular importance to the action of the, schol- the people of Medina, which the scholars of Medina, essentially. In his time, he's only a couple of generations after the Prophet If he finds that the scholars of Medina are acting in a particular way, that's an indication to him that that has some sort of backing, because they're only a couple of generations away from the Prophet So even if someone brings a hadith that could normally be considered reliable, he may give preference to the action of the scholars of Medina over that, because there's an understanding that this action came from somewhere. And so when the scholars have agreed that this hadith is from the most important hadith in Islam, then there's, there's something to that. The second thing, major thing here is that when we talk about intentions, you have to talk about riyah. So if you talk about sincerity, you have to talk about riyah. Riyah is showing off. And showing off is a huge, huge fitna. Imam Ghazali says, أَصْلُ الْرِيَاءِ طَلْبِ الْمَنْزِلَةِ فِي قُلُوبِ النَّاسِ بِإِرَائِهِمْ خِصَالٌ خَيْرٌ says that the, the, the origin of showing off is seeking a position in the hearts of people. So in order to seek the position that you want in the hearts of people, you show them the good qualities that you have. But you're supposed to be doing these good things, especially in ibadah, he says, for example, that you're seeking this position in the hearts of people by an act of worship, and that act of worship is supposed to be for Allah and for nothing else. So to do it sincerely is to do that act of worship for Allah. To do it for someone else, that's to do riyah. And this is a, this is a big, big issue. It's a type of shirk. It's a minor shirk. So the Prophet said that he fears for his people riyah, and he said it's so subtle. This showing off is so subtle. It's like a black ant on a black rock and a black knife. It's very subtle. You don't even realize you're doing it sometimes. Get into a habit, you do certain things. It said one person, he didn't realize, he thought he was coming to Salah all the time and standing in the front row all the time for Allah. And then one day he showed up late to the Salah, he ended up in the second line. And he felt really upset because now he's in the second line and the people are seeing him in the second line and not in the first line. And he realized all that time it wasn't for Allah. It was because of the people. He wanted the people to see him in the front. But you don't even realize it until after something happens You realize maybe it wasn't right The way I was doing it wasn't right And this is why they say one of the signs of sincerity Is that the praise and the blame of the people are the same It's a very high level to be on Very high level to be on But if praise and, and blame are the same thing That means you don't really, you're not doing it for the people If you're really doing it for Allah and Allah is what matters, you do what you're supposed to do with due diligence and with adab and it's not like you get belligerent. Some people take this concept 
I don't care if people blame me or if they like me or they don't like me or any of these things, and they get belligerent. You know, this is not about being belligerent. It's about being calm, about being balanced, about being normal, about acting upon the acts that you're supposed to do with deliberation. And then not worrying. People like it, they don't like it, it's not my problem. Right? Sometimes people don't like it. And especially for young people, you, you're probably going to realize this. Especially as you deal with school and you deal with administrations and you deal with a lot of different things, you're going to do sometimes things. Other people are not going to like it. Uh, if you go to MBA school or you go to law school, you're really going to deal with this issue. I promise you. If you go to a good MBA program or a good law program, you're really going to deal with this issue because they're basically all built around drinking alcohol. So you're going to have to make a stand somewhere. People are probably not going to like it. So sometimes people don't like it. If they like it, they like it. If they don't like it, they don't like it. That's fine. Uh, and the riyadh is then to, to make sure that you're doing things for the right reason. One of the most famous stories that's always told in this regard is the person, the young man who was in the, he was in the, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a story that gets across the point. There was a young man who was praying in the masjid. He was doing his prayer. He was really focusing in his prayer, you know. And there was two men that were in the back and they were talking to each other and they're saying, wow, mashallah, look at this young man. He's praying so well, he's focusing so much, and he's concentrating so hard, he's spending all his time in the musalla. And the young man, he turns around in the middle of his prayer and he tells him, yeah, I'm fasting too. <laughs> so he's, you know, not only am I praying, I'm fasting too. And I'm looking to get married, you know, that's going to be the next point. <laughs> so, but as funny as that is, it's a real issue. Especially for young people and MSAs and stuff like that, it's a real issue. Are you doing what you're doing because you want to serve Islam? Or are you doing what you're doing because you're trying to seek the pleasure of Allah? Or are you doing what you're doing because there's a brother or sister in that gathering that you want to get the attention of? It's a very serious issue. At the same time, if you do get attention from people, if people do praise you, so we're not supposed to care. People like it or they don't like it, right? As the core ideal. Just because ideals are very difficult to reach doesn't mean that we shouldn't have them, by the way. Just because they're hard to reach doesn't mean that we shouldn't have them, and it doesn't mean that we should hate ourselves because we can't reach them all the time. It's just an ideal, and you try to live up to it. So you're trying to live up to this ideal of the praise and the blame of people being the same. And then people come, and they're very happy with what you did. They praise you for what you did, which was a good thing. How do you take that? Is that bad, or how do you deal with that? The Prophet ﷺ was asked this exact question. It's very interesting when you read hadith and you find this exact question came up. Uh, someone asked him, they said to the Prophet, <laughs> He said, someone asked him, they said, Do you see the person, they do this deed, and they do it, uh, they do this good deed, and people praise them for it. What's, what, how do they, you know? And the Prophet said, That is. The early glad tidings of the believer. It's the early glad tidings of the believer. What that means is that someone might do something for Allah, and it's a good thing. They're not seeking anyone else's praise, they're just doing it only for Allah. And someone comes and they praise them for it. They weren't seeking that praise, but they still got that praise. So in this kind of circumstance, this is actually an early glad tidings. Allah is giving him a bushra, glad tidings, that your deed was accepted. So something, inshallah, that will be accepted by Allah. So there's uh, a, a balance in this. There's another hadith where the uh, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam 
also talked about how this hadith, when I first read it, I remember thinking to myself, this is the ultimate hadith for self-esteem. Struggling with self-esteem, people like me, they don't like me, how do I deal with others and all these kind of things. This is the ultimate hadith for self-esteem. Hadith where the Prophet said that uh, when there is a believer that Allah loves, okay, there's a believer that Allah loves, then Allah calls Jibreel he tells him, Yeah, Jibreel, I love so and so, so love them. So Jibreel calls all the angels, tells all the angels, Angels, Allah loves so and so, you should love this person. The angels then descend into the earth and they put the love for that person into the hearts of the believers. So this is now, there's love for the person in the heart of the believers. That's not what they were seeking, but the love is there. Right? This is also a glad tidings. From Allah that inshallah that this is it should be inshallah a sign that Allah loves the person. The point is what in the end? Your focus is not on the people. The focus is on Allah. The focus is on Allah, the people will fall into place. Prophet said in other hadith that if you have um, if you have zuhd, if you have asceticism, you're not concerned with that which is in the hands of people, the people will love you. In another hadith, is had bimafi nas, nas. That if you have this, you don't care for what they have. It's not your concern. Then the people will love you in the end. So, the, but the point is that the focus is on Allah. So, hadith number one from the four hadiths that are the foundation of Islam is actions are by intentions. Another thing, last point in this hadith, is that the Prophet ﷺ, as an educator, gives the. We talked about in the khutbah today. The Prophet ﷺ, as the educator in this hadith. He gives the principle in the first half and he gives the explanation of the principle in the second half through an example. Right? You say actions are by intentions, everyone will have what they intended. Great, alhamdulillah, I understood the general concept. But did I really understand it? So then he says, here's the example. Someone makes hijrah, they make immigration for Allah and His Messenger, they get it, the reward from Allah and His Messenger. If they make hijrah for money or to marry someone, then they're hijras for whatever they made hijra for. So now you understand, not only is the principle there, but there's an image of what that principle is like in practice. What does it look like in practice? Hadith number two. One of my, uh, personally one of my favorite hadith. The Prophet And this is a hadith that's considered hasan, it's considered good. And it's narrated by Tirmidhi and others. So the Prophet says in his hadith, from the good of one's Islam is to leave that which does not concern them. From the good of one's Islam is for people to one to leave that which does not concern them. This hadith, if we just put it in front of our face, will completely alter our lives. Because most people spend a lot of time on things that really don't concern them. Uh, what, what were we talking about recently? Something. Subhanallah. There was a conversation we had in the house recently, and we were talking about how, you know, and then we were saying, why do people even care about this in the first place? <laughs> like, why would you even have a conversation about this? There's really no, there's no benefit to the conversation. You know, is is the person? You know, a lot of the conversations that we have about other people, for example, it's really no benefit vast majority of conversations that involve other people is really no benefit. Sure, if you're talking about someone else in the sense of like, this person 
they need help in paying their rent. Can you help them pay their rent? And that's obviously you have a reason for this discussion. But if it's like, yeah, so-and-so, they got a new car, and I heard they moved from this side of the town to the other side of the town, and now their kid's going to this school, and you know, it's just completely useless conversation. It really has nothing to do with you. There's no benefit to it. But a lot of our conversations really have no benefit. There's, there's no reason to have the conversation at all. But one of the things that we have to think about from this hadith is that in order to leave that which does not concern us, we have to know what concerns us. Right? In order to leave that which is of no concern, you have to know what is of concern, which ties into the first hadith, that actions are by intentions. One of the things you learn from actions are by intentions is that you should have objectives for why you exist. I know what I'm about. If I intend to do certain things, I know what I'm about. I'm about this and this and this and this. So all those other things, they're not even my concern. All of this stuff, there's so many things, especially in the, in the age of information overload, there's so many types of information you can have. You can go onto Wikipedia and follow links for the rest of your existence. But is it what concerns you in the end? What is it that concerns you? What are you actually about? And in the teachings of Islam, there is a great emphasis, and we've talked about it before, the fiqh of priorities. There is a great emphasis on priorities. Everything is not made equal. Every obligation is not equal. Every prohibition is not equal. Prohibitions and disliked things, haram and makruh is not the same. Mustahab and wajib is not the same. Two wajibs are not the same. Wajib on an individual is different than a wajib on, on a community. A, something that's haram because of, in and of itself is different than something that's haram because of what it leads to. There's different layers in all of these types of things. And one of the great evidences of this is how the Prophet wasallam said uh, that the worst of thieves is the one who steals from his salah or her salah. And the most, I'm shortening the hadith, and the most stingy of people is the one who's stingy with salam. The point here, obviously, there's merit to praying properly, finishing your ruku, or taking your time in sujood, all of that kind of stuff. There's merit to giving salam to other people. But in this particular case, why we're talking about this, it's that the worst of thieves. Which means there's different levels of thieves. The most stingy of people. There's different levels of stinginess. There can be different levels of stinginess. Imam al-Ghazali, he said, Tark min That to leave the order between good deeds is a bad deed. To leave the order between good deeds is a bad deed because you have priorities. You have to deal with those priorities and the level that you are supposed to deal with them. Another thing about this hadith is that Ibn Abi Zayd, uh, rahimahullah, subhanAllah, coincidentally, uh, one of our good friends and classmates in Egypt, he just had a child and he's a Maliki. So he named his child Zayd. So I asked him, why did you name your child Zayd? His best friend is named Zayd too, but he said, I named him Zayd. Because I want to call him Ibn Abi Zayd. <laughs> Ibn Abi Zayd means the son of the father of Zayd. So it's basically Zayd, right? The son of the father of Zayd is Zayd. So he said, I want to call him Ibn Abi Zayd because Ibn Abi Zayd Qihrawani was a great scholar of the Maliki school. So his brother said, you know, I called him Zayd for that reason. So Ibn Abi Zayd, he said that this hadith, look, at, it wasn't only Abu Dawood that was talking like this, right? Abu Dawood gave us four hadith that summarize Islam. Ibn Abi Zayd says there's four hadith that summarize Adam that summarize manners and conduct. said, this one is one of them. Another one is, whoever, let whoever believes in Allah on the last day speak well or remain silent. And that hadith has a number of things in it, right? It says, let whoever believes in Allah on the last day speak well or remain silent. Let whoever believes in Allah on the last day be generous to their neighbor. And let whoever 
and whoever believes in Allah on the last day, let them be generous to their guests. So there's three things actually in that hadith, but that's number one. Or that's number two. The first one is the one that we're on right now. The good of one's Islam is to leave that which does not concern them. The third one is uh, do not get angry. Do not get angry. And the fourth one is that the believer loves for their brother or sister what they love for themselves. Says these four hadith summarize and if you if you apply these four, you're good. You're going to be fine. Uh, you'll, you'll understand how to interact with all kinds of different situations because they're going to give you the principles that you can build your manners and your conduct on. Another point about this hadith is that you are leaving the good of one's Islam is that they're leaving that which does not concern them. It's an actual act of leaving, which is important, and it relates to intention. You might leave something not because you're trying to gain the pleasure of Allah, just because you don't do it. But just because you don't do it, doesn't mean you're going to get rewarded for it necessarily. You're rewarded for it because you're leaving it for Allah. You have it conscious in your mind that this is something, even though it's not my normal behavior to do this, this is something that is displeasing to Allah, so I don't do it. That's my primary reason for not doing it. Then if your normal nature corresponds with that, then alhamdulillah, it's a good situation. Like maybe someone doesn't like to talk about other people. Alhamdulillah, they don't talk about other people. And they know that it's bad in Islam. So it becomes an easy act of worship for them to not talk about other people. But you're consciously leaving it uh, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And another narration of this hadith, which is very similar to it, but it's in the Musnad of Imam Ahmed. He said, That different twist on it, from the good of one's Islam is to speak little in that which does not concern them. So to leave it is not only in action but also in speech. And uh, the Prophet said in a different hadith that he was having a conversation with Ma'adah bin Jabal and he started to list all of these different things about Islam. The five pillars, jihad, all of these huge things in Islam. And then he comes to the end, he says, Mu'ad, should I not tell you what is the tip of all of that? Like, the thing that just summarizes all of these, this entire body of Islam that I just laid out. Mu'ad, should I not tell you how to do all of that? He said, yes. He said, hold this. And he stuck out his tongue and he held his tongue. So hold this. He said, Ya Rasulullah, we're going to be held responsible for the things that we say. He said, may your mother lose you. you know, it's an expression, it's not a literal prayer against his mother or him. It's an expression of just ajab, like bewilderment, you know. May your mother lose you. Is anything going to have people thrown on their faces in the hellfire like the harvest of the tongues? It's very serious issues. Anything going to have people thrown into the hellfire on their faces like the harvest of the tongues? So the Prophet is really encouraging him. And, and, and forcing to him that this is a serious matter. Uh, when you look in the books of Tazkiyah, there's always great emphasis on the diseases of the tongue, uh, the things that we should be avoiding in speech, uh, and, and there's, there's many of them, but SubhanAllah, whenever you... More and more, as I'm dealing with people, you keep finding like community problems, problems between people, all of these issues that come up in the end, they're coming back to people's speech. Either they said something they shouldn't have said, or they conveyed something they shouldn't have conveyed. You know, like a brother was telling me recently that, like, I heard that this group of people they had an issue with me because of this or that. I was like, why is the brother even telling you that in the first place? The person who came and told you this, they shouldn't be telling you that in the first place. 
You don't convey a problem that one group of people has with another person. That's not your job. Like I don't like no one takes it as their responsibility. I'm gonna go and find all the information about everyone and take it to them. This is Namina. So also from the big sins in Islam. You don't do that. If you have something you can you can convey to the person, you know, I think you might have your own personal advice. You might have an issue with this or that. Someone comes to you and they're saying things about someone else, either you stop them or you tell them go talk to that person directly. There's no need for all this bickering and this weird talking and conversations and all this stuff that goes on. Deal with the people directly. And more and more, especially with young people, this is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. Because nobody deals with anyone directly anymore. There's no direct conversation. The best you're going to get is a text message conversation. But usually it's like, they, it, it devolves to sub-tweeting, they call it sub-Facebook messaging. Like basically you're talking about someone, but you're not saying that you're talking about them. So you take it to your entire social, entire social media network, you're at like a gathering and you have a problem with what someone said, instead of talking to them about it, you go to the Facebook and you write this post about how people say these different things and whatever. And then like half the people understand what it was, and the other half don't really understand what it was, right? But there's no actual, I have an issue with this person. I have an issue with what they said. Let me go talk to them and ask them why they said it, come to an understanding of why they said it. Maybe I misunderstood them. Maybe I'm going to be have a different perspective. Maybe. I'm going to correct them and they're going to fix themselves. All of this is part of people pushing back on each other. We need that. But without those conversations, then all this bad speech leads to other bad speech. There's a very close connection between the heart and the tongue. If someone can clean up their tongue, their heart will be clean. If they can clean up their heart, their tongue will be clean. But the relationship will always be tight. You can't, and, and so you can't think like, for example, I'm just going to stop, I'm going to speak less. And, and so, but I'm not going to worry about fixing the problems that I have inside. What's going to happen is eventually you're going to speak again. And when you speak, it's going to represent all of those problems that you have inside. Because they haven't been dealt with. So that it's, this purification process is very important with, with our speech. Luqman was approached and surrounded by people. One time he was surrounded by people, the wise Luqman and Hakim. And he was surrounded by people and someone came to him and they said, Weren't you, aren't you the servant that, that used to do such and such, you used to watch the sheep? Like, you served this person who used to watch sheep? You know, you, I remember you like that. And what is it that brought you to the level that you're at now? How did you get to this place? All these people respect you and they like you and all this stuff. Luqman said, truthful speech and long silence upon that which does not concern me. Truthful speech and long silence upon that which does not concern me. Because when I talk, I tell the truth. And again, this doesn't mean that you have to be belligerent. <laughs> the immature way of dealing with these, these uh, spiritual immaturity means that you take this and you're belligerent with it. Spiritual maturity means that you're not belligerent. So people will say, no, this, he said it's truthful speech. I'm just telling the truth. I'm saying it like it is. So you can say it like it is without being belligerent. Go to the person and tell them, you know, I'm concerned about this or that. This problem that occurred, you know, this thing that you said, it worries me. Instead of in the front of everyone, like, hey, you said this, something is wrong. It's a problem. One time there was a leader in the Muslim community, an imam. It's a story I heard about him, Allah, I don't know if it's true or not, but it, it bears a good message. It was that he was giving a speech, and he quoted a hadith. And someone got up in the middle of the lecture, and they told him this hadith that you quoted, it's weak. You know, hadith used, it's weak. 
Uh, I'll tell you another funny story about weekend youth in a second. So he told him a story that you his hadith uses week. He said, okay, Jazakallah, you can give him his lecture. Some time passed, he invited this person to his home. They're having a conversation, you know, whatever, everything was fine. He told him, can you grab that book from the shelf and open it to where the bookmark is? The guy grabs it, opens it to where the bookmark is, and he finds a hadith that he had called him out on in the lecture. So then, can you, this is the hadith that you were talking to me about that one time when I spoke. It's not weak, right? <laughs> I'm just showing you for your information, it's not weak. The guy's like, how come you didn't correct me? I called you out in the middle of this gathering and so on. Why didn't you just say something? If you knew that it wasn't weak, why didn't you say something? He said, I didn't want to embarrass you. Right, so it's not, I mean, this is a very high level of, of edit and understanding. I didn't want to embarrass you, I just left it. It's okay. You know, the funny story about weak hadith is another scholar one time he was approached about this. He said, uh, speaking, a person said, What's, Is this hadith that you're using is reliable or not? He said, You know, what do you want me to use? Is it reliable or not? He said, Okay, I'm going to read you. The, the isnad, the chain of narration of the hadith, all the people in the hadith, right? So he says, so-and-so said that they heard from so-and-so, heard from so-and-so, heard from so-and-so, heard from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He said, how does this chain of narration sound? It's like, the chain of narration sounds good. He said, these are the invitation lists on a wedding. <laughs> I just gave you the wedding invitation list. You don't even know what you're talking about in the first place. Right? So a lot of people, when they, they push these things, and this is not even allowed. This is not valuable. This is not reliable science. Okay, let me give you the chain of narration. Chain of narration is the wedding invitations. It, people don't even know what they're talking about. So, so speech, to be truthful in speech and to be honest in speech and to have a long silence upon that which is not concerning me. Silence is almost a lost quality. It's okay to like not have to talk about everything. It's okay to not have to have an opinion on everything. I've told you guys before, there's a brother who he prayed here for a little while. One of the brothers that I was around when I first became a Muslim. Something he used to do that I always found to be fascinating because, you know, like normal young people behavior, you can't have silence. Either someone has to talk or you have to listen to something. Either there's music or there's talking. There's only two possibilities. But to sit in silence, and sit in silence is insanity. Who does that, right? So this brother used to get in the car with him. As soon as you get in the car, he turns the Qur'an off. Then you just drive. So when you get in the car, you think like, okay, he's turned the Qur'an off because he wants to talk about something, or he's going to... No, you just sit there and drive. Wherever you're going to go, you just go. If you don't say anything, he doesn't say anything. But you have the opportunity to say something if you want, and he'll talk to you about it. But you just sit in silence, it's no big deal. It's not a problem. And so this is... Being able to tolerate silence uh, is, is very, very important. One, one writer, non-Muslim writer, he said that one time I told my grandfather I'm bored. He was a child, he said, so he was complaining to his grandfather that he was bored. His grandfather hit him in his head. He told him, if you're bored, it's your fault. <laughs> Why are you telling me? <laughs> Why are you bored? You should be able to not be bored. You should be able to sit by yourself with nothing to do and not be bored. Come up with something. Go play with something, make up a game, talk to you, do whatever you need to do, but don't be bored. Figure it out. And so this is, you know, very important as well. Another thing that this hadith requires is time management. To leave that which does not concern you requires time management because there's only so much time, and so that's also part of this as well. 
uh, speaking of time management, we're running out of time. Hadith number three is that the Prophet ﷺ that nobody attains true belief until they love for their brother what they love for themselves. In the autobiography of Malcolm X, there's the following paragraph. Then one day Dr. Shawerbi and I were introduced by a newspaper man. This is that after Malcolm had left the Nation of Islam, everyone was telling him he needs to meet this person named Dr. Shawerbi who was uh, working in, in New York and you know from from the Middle East uh, and, and so everyone's telling me to meet him. He says, then one day I met him and we were introduced. He was cordial. He had followed me in the press. I said I had been told of him and we talked for 15 or 20 minutes. We both had to leave to make appointments we had when he dropped on me something whose logic never would get out of my head. He said, no man has believed perfectly until he wishes for his brother what he wishes for himself. What's fascinating about this is Malcolm did not realize it was a hadith. When, when Dr. Shawadwi says this to him, he did not realize it was a hadith. But his knowledge and his understanding and his fitra was so clean that he realized this is a very profound statement. This has never left me, the profoundness of this statement, that you don't have belief until you do that. This does not only apply to Muslims. This applies to non-Muslims as well, that if you, love, you do not believe until you love for your brother or your sister, uh, what you love for yourself. And part of this is that we should love for people to correct their mistakes. should love for people sometimes when they correct our mistakes. And when someone comes to us and they correct us in a mistake, then it's very important uh, to be able to, to, to accept that, which is sometimes very difficult. Uh, they say in Hadith that you will not become a real Hadith scholar until you take from those who are above you and those who are below you. This idea of someone who's less knowledgeable, it doesn't mean you can't learn from them. You should still learn from them. And you love for others what you love for yourself. It doesn't mean that you cannot have nice things. Okay. It doesn't mean that you can't want nice things. It just means that you should want it for others as well. And if someone else has it, you don't want them to lose it. This is the actual definition of hasid. actual definition of hasid is you see something good that someone else has, and you want them to lose it. Not only just do you want it, you can want it. That's fine. You can see someone else who has in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, you can have two types of people, you should have envy for them. Someone who Allah has given them wealth and they can spend it in the way of Allah, and someone that Allah has given them understanding of Islam where they memorize the Quran, and you want to also memorize the Quran. These people, you can want it. But in this case, you don't want them to lose that thing. You just want it too. And Allah is. Allah is beyond uh, needing, it's not a zero-sum game. Like they can have it, and you can have it too. Allah is more generous and more powerful and more mighty than having to take it from one person to give it to someone else. Um, there's a funny hadith here you know, on the topic of wanting things for your, for your brother and for yourself, but also not having to give up what you have. So there's one companion... And every now and then you come across these hadith because sometimes we have this understanding of the companions that they were these superhumans and they didn't have any real conversations and they lived these really just amazing, incredible lives, which they did. They were still human beings. And you see funny occasions every now and then, like the occasion of Al-Fadl uh, ibn Abbas, who was riding with the Prophet them on the same animal with him, and he saw a woman that he thought was very attractive, and he stared at her. And the Prophet took his head and he turned it away. 
you know, this is happening with the, he's riding on the same animal as the Prophet Sallallahu and it happened. And these are still human beings. They were the greatest human beings because they made mistakes and they fixed them. Right? They don't just like keep doing it. Uh, and another, so the other funny one that is one companion, he came to the Prophet Sallallahu he said, Ya Rasulullah, Qad qusimani min al-jamali ma tara. So anyone who speaks Arabic understands how funny this statement is. So Qad qusimani min al-jamali ma tara. So Ya Rasulullah, you see the beauty that Allah has given me. <laughs> this is literally the statement. Ya Rasulullah, you see the beauty that Allah has given me. So I like to look nice. Is that bad? And like, does this mean that I don't, I, I'm arrogant? Does it mean that I don't like, want good for other people? Does it, you know, he's worried about it. Is this a bad thing? And the Prophet tells him it's not a bad thing. Basically, to want nice clothes, to want to look nice is not a bad thing. What's bad and what's arrogance is to reject the truth and to look down on others. You can look decent and not look down on others. So this is very important. Sometimes people will take like love for your brother, what you love for yourself, and then they just want to like destroy completely their entire material existence. Because how can I have all these things when my brothers and my sisters don't have these things and I just get rid of all of it, right? It doesn't have to go to that extreme. The fourth hadith, so number three. Uh, number three hadith is you love for your brother No one attains true belief until they love for their brother or sister What they love for themselves So number one is actions are by intentions Number two is that from the good of one's Islam Is to leave that which does not concern them Number three is that someone does not attain true belief Until they love for their brother or sister What they love for themselves Number four is the halal is clear and the haram is clear And this is a really amazing hadith that has a lot of of benefits. It's one of those ones that you could probably easily write a nice essay on, 50 pages or something. But the Prophet said that the halal is clear and the haram is clear, and between them are things that are doubtful. Most people do not know them, which therefore has an implication that some people do know them. There are some people that do understand these doubtful matters or things that are considered to be unclear. Whoever stays away from these doubtful things, then they have done well for their deen and for their honor. And whoever goes into these doubtful things, and they're eventually going to go into the haram. And this is like the person who has a, she- he's a shepherd, he has sheep, and he goes to the boundary of someone else's land. Right? He's right on the boundary. Grazing the sheep right on the boundary of someone else's land. As long as you're right on the boundary, eventually they're going to go over. They're going to take from that person's land. And it says that Allah, every king has a sanctuary. And the sanctuary of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is his maharim. Those things which he has prohibited. So don't like go on the borderline of those prohibitions. And then it ends by saying in the heart there is, or in the body there is a morsel of flesh if it's good. Then the entire body is good, and if it's bad, then the entire body is bad. It is the heart. So there's many, many things in this hadith, but uh, the first is that you focus the, the things that are clearly halal, they're clearly halal. Things that are clearly haram, they're clearly haram. Stay away from the latter, the former you can do. It's halal, right? Um, in between, there's a lot of doubtful issues. Now, just because the scholars differed on something, does that make it doubtful? Because this is something that comes up a lot. Well, there's this opinion and there's that opinion. Well, we should just stay away from the doubtful, we take the harder opinion. 
that's not necessarily the right approach. Occasionally, on some things here and there, that's fine. You know, you want to do that. But the thing is, look at it this way. If you were to take the hardest opinion on everything in Islam because you want to stay away from the doubtful, you will create an understanding of Islam that is way more rigid and difficult than Islam was meant to be. It will be really hard. If you're going to take the harder opinion on every single thing, it's going to be outrageously difficult. And there's no madhab that says that. Like maybe one madhab, they're easy on this thing, they're hard on this thing, they're in the middle on this thing. And this other one, they're in the middle, they're hard, they're easy. So you're like, you know what, I'm going to take hard, 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 hard. So you're making your own madhab of Islam that's outrageously difficult. And the Prophet said, that the faith of Islam is easy and no one will make it more difficult than it needs to be except that it overcomes them it's it's, you're going to get completely drowned in this thing because you made it harder than it needs to be it's not meant to be that hard so as long as you have a legitimate well-grounded scholarly opinion you are not in the shubahat this is really important as long as you have a legitimate, well-grounded, scholarly opinion, it's not a doubtful matter. So you can't say, like, if the Hanafi school has a position, it's not doubtful. If the Maliki school has a position, it's not doubtful. If the Hanbali school has a, for the most part, every Medhab has one or two issues that kind of like you should stay away from. For the most part, it's, it's not, uh, this doesn't mean you're in something doubtful. The other major point here is that you should always try to there's different levels of conversation in Islam. The conversation of is it haram or not is the base level conversation. People come to you like, can I do this or not? Can I do this or not is not actually the best question. That's the lowest possible denominator question. The better question is, should I do this or not? Just because you can does not mean that you should. You can go up to the fence. In that sanctuary analogy of the sheep, and the, the, you can go right up to the fence. Should you go right up to the fence? No. Because eventually you're going to fall over the fence. This is why the scholars, for example, they say that, like with prayers, that the sunan are the moat around the fart is the castle. So like the, the obligatory prayers are your castle, you put this moat around it of the sunnah. As long as you're accustomed to making the sunnah prayers, it's going to be very difficult for you to miss the obligatory. But if you're only in the habit of doing the obligatory and nothing else, then when you hit that low point, your low point is going to go into that which you have to do and you miss that which you have to do. So it's good to put a layer between us and that. And again, this doesn't mean that you're choosing the hardest things always, but you're trying to be as best as you possibly can. The last major point, we'll stop here, inshallah, is that in the end of the hadith, um, the there's a morsel of flesh in the body. If it's good, the entire body is good. If it's bad, the entire body is bad. And that is the heart. And the heart and the, the purity of the heart and the development of purity in the heart and the erasing, the gradual um, treatment of its diseases is the most important thing in Islam. That doesn't mean that you don't do outward actions, but your outward actions are a manifestation of the goodness of your heart. And they lead to the goodness of the heart as well. But the goal in the end is that heart. If the heart is bad, everything else is bad. It doesn't matter how many good things they seem to do. But if the heart is good, then everything else will be good. And so it is actually an individual obligation upon every single Muslim to know the diseases of the heart and to stay away from them. And to know the things that the heart should have and to inculcate them. 
And there's a lot of a lot of good works on this. Probably the easiest and most beautiful thing to read in English is uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf's book, Purification of the Heart. This book is absolutely beautiful. He took it off a, a traditional metan uh, poem by an imam. It's in alphabetical order, goes through the diseases of the heart and so on. And he gives commentary on it because it's actually in English and because of the knowledge of the author. It's very beautiful. So he talks about hatred, he talks about jealousy, he talks about all of these things that we should be getting rid of, how to get rid of them, how to know if we have them, all that kind of stuff. Very, very easy to find, purification of the heart by Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, and you can, inshallah, read it and benefit from it. And then after you read it, you can read it again. And after you read it again, you can read it again until you die. Inshallah, this is the way the purification of the soul books work. And that's why the topic never gets old. Because we never attain to a point where the heart is automatically pure now and we're done. It doesn't work that way. It's not like, you know what, I'm going to work on this for three years. Once the three years are over, live the rest of the 30 years of my life as a pious, righteous person. Probably means that you're not going to live your life as a pious and righteous person. It's a process that continues and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on and that's okay. So that that the the goal is the journey itself. So when we get to paradise, inshallah, all of those impurities will be gone. But until then, we're in this life. In this life, we struggle and we wait for the reward from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Ask Allah to forgive us of our sins and our shortcomings and to accept from us. Amin. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Sayyidina Muhammad wa alaihi wasallam.